0: I have a growing or constant list of people I think are doing something interesting whom I should know. And I slowly reach out to them at what I consider to be opportune moments. My friends all basically know that at some point I decided I would collect them and they are now in my orbit, whether they like it or not, because I'm extremely insistent. So I'm doing that wherever I am, all the more if I'm here in Italy, trying to learn more about Italian food and beverage in the contemporary context and in a historical perspective. But then once I am here, I can take advantage of that mode of interacting to much greater effect.
1: Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome back to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and this is Episode 121, the second to last of season three, as well as the second to last in my As It Happens series that I've been airing to wrap up the season in a new way. As a reminder, the idea behind As It Happens is, well, often in a podcast, when you talk to someone or actually in any conversation, there's one long stream of information and background, all kinds of things get smoothed over and make sense. And that's fine. But with As It Happens, I'm talking to interesting people two or three different times, months apart. And at the end of each segment, we talk about what we're going to talk about in a few months and what's going on, what might we expect to see and not see and learn and not learn. And so we kind of see the zigs and the zags. We kind of see things as they're happening in real time. And that's why I call it As It Happens. In this episode, we talk to Danielle Caligari, a professor in the Department of French and Italian at Dartmouth College and a counselor of the Dante Society of America. We're gonna do this three different times. This episode is different in a couple of respects. First, my guest is a professor, an academic. Well, of course, that's not all that unique in that I like to bring professors who are doing particularly interesting work to you and talk about that. I mean, Jerry Da Silva, just back in episode 108, September of this year, who talked about why do humans walk on two feet? You listened to that episode. Really, really interesting and pretty important question. Patricia Hanaway, way back in season one, episode thirteen, May 2019. She's a professor and a graphical and computer artist at Stanford and at Dartmouth, and she worked with Peter Jackson on Lord of the Rings. Peter Jackson's particularly in the news lately because he did the Get Back series on the Beatles. That's been airing on Disney Plus. Kevin Hand who's working now on a NASA mission to Jupiter's moon Europa. Eric Foner, who's the famous Columbia history professor and an expert on the reconstruction era in America. Peter Winkler, the mathematician and puzzle master. I mean, you get the picture, but this episode is different in that Professor Danielle Caligari is just beginning her career. And that's really interesting because how does anyone begin a career, craft a career, figure out how to stand out and be recognized for her accomplishments? How do you navigate the academic maze on the way to tenure? Even why would anyone want to do all of that? I mean, this is interesting, and I'm excited to bring you Danielle's story while in the relatively early stages of her career. The second thing that's different, at least with respect to how most people think about academia and maybe how most people think about their own careers, is that Danielle is not only building her career, she's building her brand. And I like that. I like that for the lessons it yields for everyone who's trying to do the same. I like it for the insight that, in fact, every one of us, every one of us needs to build a brand to take control over that process. Otherwise, we leave it to others to define who we are and what we stand for, and that's just not a smart move. And it's kind of an existential way. You know, it's not appropriate. If we don't decide who we are and what we stand for, who will? Answer, plenty of others, and we can't let that happen. And Danielle is really in the first steps, even with lots of accomplishments, early days in doing exactly that. This issue happened to me. I probably talked about this somewhere along the way in a previous episode or elsewhere. But I started my academic career at the University of Southern California, a fantastic school then and now. But I was typecast as a researcher. And I was the guy that was gonna publish, publish in top journals, and that was it. But I wanted more. I didn't have the chance because senior administrators and professors at USC didn't wanna give it to me, didn't wanna give me that chance to spread my wings and have a bigger impact. But in reality, the truth is, I didn't do enough to make them give it to me. And so I don't blame them, I blame me. I needed to ensure that they understood what I wanted and why it was a good idea for them and why it was a good idea for me and to go for that. In the end, I had to leave my job at USC to accomplish the goals that I wanted. And while it worked out really, really well for me, the enduring lesson that stays with me from that long ago episode of my life is that it's up to each of us to raise our hand before anyone is even asking. And that's what Danielle is doing. For Danielle Caligari, that means engaging in several related activities from her own podcast. She's the co-host of Gola, a podcast on Italian food and beverage culture with Katie Parla, to building relationships with artisans, farmers, innovators, winemakers, and other foodies in Italy, which can be leveraged in all sorts of ways, some of which we'll talk about here and in subsequent episodes as well. All the while publishing and researching, spending countless hours in libraries, writing and developing new courses and experiences for her college students. Her teaching and research focuses on Italian literature and food and beverage studies. Her first book is Dante's Gluttons, Food and Society from the Convivio to the Comedy. And it's forthcoming from the Amsterdam University Press in 2022. So as you listen, you may want to pay particular attention to how Danielle is building her portfolio of activities, all of which are related to the core of what she cares about. Italian history, Italian culture, and Italian food. Okay, so our first conversation took place on March 24th, 2021. Here it is. I'll be back with a few quick comments after this segment. Here's Danielle Caligari. Welcome to the SIDCAST. This is Sid Finkelstein, and it's great to be with everyone here. And my guest today is Danielle Caligari. Hi, Danielle. Hi.
0: Hi, Sid. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, I'm happy you're doing it. It's exciting. You're a new professor at Dartmouth in the Department of French and Italian. I'm not sure the formal name, French and Italian Studies, perhaps. And actually, you're talking to me now in this first segment from Sonoma, which is going to be a foreshadowing of some of our conversation. <laughs> For fans of the Sidcast who know I like to talk about food and wine and other things like that, are they going to say, of course, he'll find somebody like that. Of course, he'll want to have somebody like Professor Caligari. So you've written about, you focused on Italian culture. You have an Italian name, but that doesn't explain why you'd be so interested in Italian culture. So where did this come from? Or where did it start?
0: It's a good question because even within the world of academia, there aren't that many people who are pure Italianists, as they would say. And I do have a PhD in Italian studies, so it is a little bit of a niche within a niche. And I actually started as an undergraduate studying journalism and just was taking languages alongside that as a natural addition and sort of appendix and found that I was pretty taken with them. I was studying more rigorously Spanish at first, and then I decided more or less on a whim that I would study abroad in Florence. It just seemed attractive, as I think... Doesn't
1: sound like a hard sell. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Exactly. And I went to Italy, and I had the expected reaction, falling in love, et cetera, et cetera. So when I came back to finish my undergraduate degree, I ended up taking more courses in the Italian department and I found that I was very happy there, largely for more practical reasons, a much smaller department. I had really close contact with my professors, got a lot of attention and advice from them that allowed me to progress into a master's program that brought me back to Florence. Following that, I lived in Italy for a little while, and eventually I realized that you can't really have a terminal master's in Italian and do anything with that. It's kind of an all or nothing situation. So I went back to the U.S. and did my Ph.D. in Italian NYU under John Petrillo, who is Probably the most famous Dantista, critical literary studies in Dante, was a very strong suit, the department I was in. And I ended up with a dissertation on Dante and food. And that's together, I guess.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Exactly. So did you grow up speaking Italian?
0: No, I didn't. I'm kind of typical Italian-American, Irish-American blend that you find in the New York metropolitan area. And I have my father's side last name comes from a family with mixed Northern and Southern Italian heritage, but no one in my family was speaking Italian anymore when I was growing up. There was the general pride in Italian culture, but not that same closeness. And I was the first one to study in a a more serious way and to take up the language again.
1: Were your grandparents the first to come over or long before that as well?
0: Great-grandparents, really.
1: Great-grandparents which may have been, what, gigantic immigration wave in 1880s or 1900? Is that range?
0: Yeah, I was right in one side of the family a little bit earlier and one slightly later. Yeah. But yeah, turn turned over the 20th century, more or less.
1: Right. There are no other academics in your family?
0: I should say that depends on how you define it. Plenty of people in my family have advanced degrees and are dedicated to learning in a serious way. But I think I'm the only person who has a full-time career as a professor, and especially at the humanities.
1: And so when you wanted to go and do this, they were supportive, they understood it?
0: My parents are extremely supportive. I think... I was also, even from very early childhood, a very driven person. And I think Mm -hmm. people just respond to that with a kind of matching of your confidence, because when they see that you are so motivated towards something, they feel inclined to support it. So I found that my insistence that this was my path was sort of plowed the way.
1: You kind of figured it out as you're going along, I think, right? You weren't setting out to get a PhD, but you had the experience in the Italian department that was exciting and you found you liked it. And then the Florence thing, of course, triggered lots of other intellectual and emotional triggers that got you excited about it.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I would say that the drive was towards learning in a broader sense. And it's important to emphasize that if you don't have parents who also did PhDs and are in the academic world, it's a pretty hazy space. So I had this kind of general idea that I wanted to do these things, but I certainly didn't know precisely how one went about it. One step led to the next, that's for sure.
1: So actually, you're right. People have no clue how this whole thing works. It's just this crazy thing. And you go to university and there's the professor. Many people probably don't understand that if you're not publishing as a professor, you're not standing up in front of the class as a teacher very long. And whether that's books or articles or a mix of the two. Did you find it kind of natural as you started to get into it? Or did you find it to be this kind of unusual world? I mean, I found it to be an unusual. I'll just say that. I figured it out. I got it. But It's an odd type of way to create a career. It's just not the same as most other careers, including ones where a lot of education is a very, very important factor, like, for example, law or medicine. It's just really different. I'm wondering whether you felt that way and how you navigated that in the early days, especially during a PhD program.
0: Yeah, it's a very strange world, and there isn't really any preparing for it because, exactly, it's not comparable to a JD or an M D A. You get a PhD in the humanities completely defined by the determining of your own space. And there are no rules really at all in terms of how you might do that. There are some kind of vague parameters about the kinds of coursework that you might do, the kinds of people you might bounce ideas off of, the kinds of publications you might form and conferences you might go to. But there isn't one path forward. Different programs have different shapes to them. For example, I was working in a national tradition. So I was also back and forth from Italy. And the Italian postgrad humanities context is totally different than the American one. All of these spaces are odd for a variety of practical reasons. And then also because it's hard to say that I'm going to figure out an area of study that is both interesting to as many people as possible, but as untouched by as many people as possible.
1: That's the one that is really hard, right? You have to do a dissertation has to be new creation of knowledge and actually everything you do after that also has to be, to some extent, new creation of knowledge. And people have been studying a lot of things for a very, very long time. And in the humanities, it goes on for centuries upon centuries. Did you ever worry about, you know, the proverbial story about humanities professors? Very, very, very smart, but they can't get a job and they're driving a taxi in New York City. You ever worry about that?
0: I eventually started to worry about it because it took me a while to get a tenure line professorship. I finished my PhD in 2014. It's never a good time to be a PhD Mm -hmm. in the humanities, but it was an especially bad time because after 2008, most universities started contracting and the market was very, very slim. In any given year, again, I'm working in a very limited specialty as it is, but it wasn't unusual for there to be one or two jobs in my field in the entire United States.
1: One or two jobs in total? Correct, yeah. Wow. The people you went to school with did a PhD in a somewhat similar area. Did they stick with it as well, or did they have a winding path? Or
0: I have many friends and colleagues who went into other kinds of work. I have colleagues who stayed within academia but redefined their space in some way. I know lots of people who moved great distances, and I'm talking mm-hmm. in a global sense. So, yeah, a little bit of everything.
1: What happened then in your case? So you graduated and there were, I mean, it's one or two jobs in total. So you didn't get an academic job at that time. What did you do?
0: Initially, I did other things that one does in that space, which is to say apply for fellowships and postdocs and teach. I did both of those things. I was a postdoc at UCLA. I was a postdoc at the Scuola Normale in Pisa, which is the equivalent of the Ecole Normale in Paris. Some people might be more familiar. I taught at a few different institutions, mostly at UC Berkeley, also at UC Davis. And then I added a component that is non-traditional, which is to say I started working more in earnest on food and wine studies, um, particularly getting wine education credentials and uh, beginning to both teach and consult in wine.
1: And did you do that as a hedge in case the academic career kind of petered out? Or would you have done something like that anyways, because you're passionate about the entire field?
0: I think it's both. It was something that I had always wanted to do. It was something that I had always had a passion for. Obviously, you don't start studying wine at a distance. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, that would defeat the purpose. Yes.
0: Right, exactly. On the other hand, I was very much hedging. I was doing all different kinds of work, waiting to see where the chips fell.
1: People in that situation that are working as adjuncts and other part-time jobs, it's not easy. You don't get paid a lot and you have no guaranteed employment and you're going contract to contract. I mean, that's what you were doing, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's very stressful. Most
0: of the time you don't have benefits. Most of the time, as you said, I mean, contract to contract could even be semester to semester occasionally doing freelance work on the side, I would, if I got to write some copy for Wine Spectator, that could often buy me the same amount of security as a two-course load, which is in theory a full load at a major university. So it was difficult to maintain that, even though I was very passionate about my research as well.
1: It's really amazing. There is a two-tier system And there's a gigantic difference. And there's so many people that are very, very smart and capable, but there are not enough jobs in many areas, in particular humanities, but I think across the board to some extent. And you have to craft a career, cobble together things, and then start to figure out what you want to do. But you landed at Dartmouth, so you have to explain how that happened. And this after several years, right?
0: Yeah, I was planning on staying really settling on the West Coast, if one can say that. I expected to have regular teaching gigs there with the relationships that I had at the UC campuses. And if you're interested in food and wine studies, it's, again, not a coincidence that I was in Northern California. I'm here again, largely for the same relationships. So I had a space that made sense here. And then Dartmouth opened a job in the fall of 2019. And some of my colleagues reached out and suggested that I throw my hat in the ring because it was a job that was very much outlined for a person with my particular profile. And I learned from colleagues at Dartmouth that they were very interested in me. And then I went through the typical academic interview process, which includes a series of initial interviews followed by a campus visit, which is usually two or three days long and everybody are interviewed by the dean and the chair and variety of other colleagues. You give a public lecture, you teach a class, etc. And then I received a call from them about six weeks later that they wanted to offer me the job. And we had just been locked down in a pandemic. After a long time of hedging and doing a lot of different work and a moment in my life where I was pretty confident I was probably not going to go full speed ahead into a traditional academic position I ended up with one of the most coveted and most traditional of jobs for the formation that I had in terms of my education
1: it's amazing actually I mean you must pinch yourself you ended up in an Ivy League school after paying a lot of dues and trying to figure things out and then of course the irony is the pandemic hits but in the scheme of things you've worked your way through it you must have been so excited when this hit.
0: Yeah, I was very excited. It was very special. As you mentioned before, an important thing to kind of keep in the backdrop. I had a lot of colleagues who had to completely pivot.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I was one of them and then things fell into place.
1: Yeah. You wrote a book on Dante. That was your dissertation, I guess, that you made into a book.
0: Mm-hmm. That's great.
1: So maybe I could ask you a few things about Dante. First of all, who was he?
0: So you certainly can, not least because it's the perfect moment for this. It's the 700-year anniversary of Dante's death. And tomorrow is the major celebration day within that year. So it is Dante time right now.
1: Wow. <laughs> and so tomorrow is March 25th, 2021. And so there's celebrations or, well, everything's kind of limited what can be done. But there are events and activities related to, it's 700 years?
0: Yeah. 1321. Yeah. So Dante was a poet, first and foremost, an Italian poet. He is widely credited with creating the foundation for the Italian vernacular, which is to say Italian as it is spoken today is the Italian that Dante proposed in his works. There are many, but the most famous of them is the Divine Comedy. The Divine Comedy is a poem about a pilgrim also named Dante, who travels through hell, purgatory, and paradise or heaven.
1: You've taken an interesting angle on Dante, as far as I could tell, because you're talking about food. (laughs) And your book for the title is still Dante's Gluttons?
0: Yeah, yeah. Until my publisher tries to fight with me over the next couple of months. But I think it's going to stay Dante's Gluttons,
1: at least that part. So a quick tangent on what you just mentioned. It turns out publishers think that their geniuses are coming out with book titles. It doesn't matter how many years you spent doing the research, doing the work, you show up and they think, I think it's a game really. They think that they've got a it better. It's happened with actually the two most successful books I've written, both times. And I have to give the publisher credit. I think he improved the titles in my case. But Dante's Gluttons is a pretty good title as far as I can tell. <laughs>
0: Thanks. I hope so. I think they'll like it when things come together. I think they'll see that it suits. It is an unusual angle for Dante because Dante being this sort of looming and important, capital A, author is someone who is not usually approached through any of the kind of material studies angles, you'd say, you know, things like food and fashion are just not the kinds of approaches that academics would consider to be worthy of Dante in addition to worthy of our attention. As I mentioned, the thing that made Dante most famous and the reason why people continue to study him and read his work is his contribution to a kind of theo philosophy through his poetry, a kind of answer to what happens to us in the afterlife and how we should behave in this life as a result or in response to that. Food doesn't seem to have a place there in a very literal sense, right? We're talking afterlife. we're talking about the bodiless time. I found it to be, on the contrary, something that was very natural as an approach because my feeling is that Dante remains accessible and approachable and worthy of our attention because he is very human. And he has interests and uses language that responds to or takes up the kinds of things that continue to bring us pleasure or that are quotidian and universal at the same time, food being the first and foremost of those.
1: So you focus on food and society. So what's the thesis? What's kind of the punchline? That's not a good word to tell any academic punchline, but this audience, I think punchline people get. (laughs) Thesis we get nervous about, but it's the same question.
0: (laughs) as also publishers, I was like, why should we care, right? And so yeah, 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 the purpose of the book is broadly to introduce a field that is pretty hermetic to a larger audience and to create a broader conversation. More specifically, it is to demonstrate how Dante used food to communicate theories of community construction and the way that we interact with each other and continue to either thrive or undermine that through gestures of nourishment and through the meanings of foods. A quick example that I often get is if I say to you, I'm going to have champagne and caviar after we get off our call, I didn't say anything about my class or my status or the money that I have to spend. But in fact, I have. So foods communicate in a shorthand very quickly certain things about who we are or who we wish to be or what we wish others to see in us. And that's something that Dante uses very often.
1: That's interesting. And I guess it's true, right? Especially... I'm thinking about ethnic groups that have certain types of ethnic food and they're labeling themselves and not in a bad way by any means, just in a very, actually, most of the time, you're not even thinking about it. And you're labeling yourself as, well, I'm whatever I am. And this is the type of food that I eat. You're talking about class now. And I think champagne caviar is a good example. Is that something you focus on a lot then kind of social strata as determined or as hinted at from uh, Dante's discussion of food?
0: Yes, very much. It's a lot about hierarchy, distinction, boundaries that we set or that we try to lift between ourselves and others. And as you said, there are groups that are defined more obviously to us and that we define ourselves as ethnicity, faith geographic location, historical moment too if we want to sort of broaden those ideas race, gender, etc. but then there are ones that are less obvious that are a little bit more subtle and surprisingly food often is one of the
1: spaces where we can tease out those subtleties. That actually makes a lot of sense. I mean food is the one constant over history of mankind. And lack of food has had a gigantic impact in terms of famine and wars, and obviously still highly relevant in 2021 around the world, and even to some extent in America with COVID era and how many people lost their jobs and having to go to food banks when previously they were volunteering in food banks. And now they're going to food banks to get some out. So food is life. It's essential for life, but also has this big symbolic value. Was wine part of the story as well in Dante's time?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I often pushing back against when I'm teaching or lecturing is a perception that people drank wine for two determinative reasons that are often thrown out are that people didn't have clean water where that people needed the caloric intake. Neither of those things are really true in the medieval Italian context. It's mostly not true other places either. The reason why people drank wine is for the same reason we do today. They liked to get a little bit drunk and they liked the taste of it and they liked that it was stratified like other foods, that you could have fine wine or poor quality wine, that wine could age, that wine could have a gift value also as a political tool. So wine was very present in the medieval diet and in this richness of culture as well in terms of its kind of communicative potential.
1: I was reading something a while ago. There's a book called Heat. I don't know if you ever read it. Sure, yeah. The author is a former editor at New Yorker. Maybe you remember his name. He has a new book about his time in France in Lyon. But I'm drawing a blank for a second. Bill Buford. That's right. Bill Buford. And I loved Heat. It was so interesting. It's about his journey from a journalist to really a chef and a butcher, even as we go further into it. But he talked about where the French get the French cuisine. Why is France so associated with, well, literally, haute cuisine, higher quality? And I think he said it came with Catherine Medici, who married one of the kings, mm-hmm. one of the Louis probably, and brought with her a retinue of hundreds and hundreds of people and chefs and methods and approaches. I don't know if you ever looked at that and whether that's true or not true. If you can shed some light.
0: This is kind of an ongoing battle. Certainly the queen, who is to me as an Italianist, Caterina de' Medici, to the French Catherine de' Medici, is a kind of marker of a moment in which there was an important exchange, a moment in which Italian cuisine, as it had been developed at the Renaissance courts, was brought into the more centralized and then more wide-reaching context of the French regal court. On the other hand, I think a lot of moments like that are really then kind of blown up to become outsized as though Italians had cucina in their case and Catherine ran off with it to France and then it was cuisine forever after that. In reality, what happens across the board, is a lot of exchange, right? It's very fluid and the ability for the French to kind of have the lock on it comes with the politicization of food and an understanding that if you have one easily packaged idea of a national cuisine, that's exportable as opposed to smaller regional identities that become harder to track, harder to kind of trap also and exchange with others.
1: Now, meaning the last 50 years, probably, the regional nature of food has become kind of gigantic. It's true in America with, take, for example, Nashville hot chicken. It's just one town, one place, one style of chicken. Now it's replicated in lots of different places. I actually had as a guest in the SIDCAST, someone from the Prince family that is kind of the founding family of hot chicken that opened up a great place in LA. And then just talk about Italy. There's so many regions in Italy, and food is very, very different styles and even the type of pasta that is common is different in different regions. And France is absolutely that way as well. So it's pretty interesting to think about. And I actually could see just based on what we're talking about now, how a study of food could be such a strong sociological marker of how people lived, how people think, and even of power and culture. Really, for some of the reasons that you're saying as well, I think these are things I know you're very interested in. and have studied a lot. I'm just kind of making it up as I'm going along, as I think <laughs> about it. Does that have something to do with your new work that you're planning to do or just starting to do on kind of the Italian cookbook?
0: Coming at this from an academic standpoint, there are you know two places where I find energy and motivation for all the work that I do. One is practical trajectory moving towards tenure and then beyond for promotion. And that means that you write a book and then you have another book behind it and one more after that, and you kind of keep going and you try to build on the research that you've already accomplished and enrich that, but also elaborate it. On the other side, there's the things that I'm just passionate about that are giving, you know, that are how I get an idea and keep moving with it. And so starting with Dante and food, I spent a lot of time researching and pulling out archival material that allowed me to reconstruct the culinary culture of Dante's moment. And while I was doing that, I ended up spending a lot of time in particular with the Liberte Coquina, which is a recipe collection that was probably created at the Sicilian court of Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II in the early 13th century. And that has sort of led me to have a foundation for a new book that will take a look at how people in power at that time and then later used recipe collections or culinary culture more broadly as a means to create a more significant hegemony or exact effect power in a variety of different ways. The example of the Liberte Coquina, the Sicilian Imperial court is particularly good because it's the product of a leader who had extremely fractured territories across Europe. So the idea of bringing together in a text that could be copied and circulated the kinds of things that were happening at his court, for example, fine dining, was clearly a way of influencing a broader group of people and demonstrating power was anchored in that space.
1: Let me ask you about that because I'm not sure how we connect all the dots and that's what you're doing. So it's really interesting. So you have a ruler in a particular region because he's got lots of wealth. He can eat better than the average person and he, he codifies it. He writes it down or somebody writes it down and then they put it together. Maybe we would call that a cookbook today and it's a collection of recipes or methods of cooking and ways people ate. How does that generate power for that person by putting that together?
0: the larger context helps understand that better. Basically, it's one component in a grander scheme of creating what we would later call a Renaissance man. The idea of demonstrating the completeness of your cultural space. Among the other things that he would create, he also had a treatise on falconry and worked in alchemy. He had important mathematicians at his court. He had a series of translators who composed poetry in a variety of languages. It's about showing that you have a hold over all of the areas of culture in human life. And food is the anchoring's the cornerstone of that because as you mentioned before said everyone must eat. It is perfectly universal. There is no time or place where humans haven't had the relationship with food. And as a result of that, it becomes the ultimate point of reference.
1: So this is really interesting. A leader that collects central cultural elements, whether it's poets or musicians or food and cooking and chefs, that gives him power because people see that as a statement or a manifestation of power. I find that really interesting because is that true today? I mean, we have such a different society, obviously, but is that true today? Maybe we see it in people building, like business people, building brands that encompass many aspects, less so politicians. Although I don't know, I'll turn the question back to you, whether you think we see anything like that there are many ways for leaders to project power now, many, many ways. But the fact that the average person, I'll say, cares about culture, I don't know if that's so true today, but that sounds like it was definitely true in the eras you're talking about.
0: So one big difference is that the examples that I'm looking at in um, pre-modern or early modern Europe are the equivalent of dictators, right? I mean, these are monarchs or emperors. Mm -hmm. So their kind of top-down model is very much going to require a kind of stick and carrot and a maintenance of a relationship with the citizens of their territory that is a little bit different than what we might be imagining in our current political landscape and cultural landscape for that matter. But that being said, I do think this is, as you said, this is how you sell a brand, right? You can't just stand up and say, I will be the most efficient at making decisions. You also have to say, this is why you like me in so many words or in so many actions. And we do probably, you're right that this is something that we see more in a business sphere, but it may be that that is a place where more power is exercised now than in the halls of government in any case.
1: Yeah, very interesting to see how you develop these ideas and come. I mean, you've been working on this for some time. It's not brand new, but are you writing the book actually right now or more researching it?
0: I'm in this kind of a typical in-between academic space where one book is nearly done and that's getting ready for press. So that's going through revisions and I'm reviewing a variety of pieces of the book that have to get done after you've done all the academic work, the research part of it. So that's on one side. And then on the other side, I'm researching the new book. The book on cookbooks and power will be really the focus of my attention over the summer when I expect to be back in Italy. Again, pandemic notwithstanding, we'll we'll see how things move ahead when I expect to be back in Italy working on the raw data collection. So that will be very much a time where I will get back into libraries and archives, pulling out information, reading a lot and trying to create a convincing argument with evidence behind it in a kind of more scientific way.
1: So maybe we'll check in with you next, maybe in Italy in the summertime. Hopefully you'll be able to go there. I think the prognosis is good as we sit here at the end of March and we could check in. And you know what we're talking about, we talked about this earlier before we started recording, but what we're talking about is, Danielle, you're kind of creating your own brand. We just talked about brand a little bit, but you're kind of creating your own academic brand, a particular type of brand. And again, most people don't quite get that, but I think academics have to create a brand. Mostly it's a narrow brand that is only understood or only observed by other academics. I think in your case, and I've certainly tried to follow that in my own career. It has to start there because you have to have the academic credentials. You have to be accepted as a successful scholar. But I think your interests are even broader, even wider. We need to talk about all the things that you've done in the food arena, including your own podcast, which we'll get to, I think, when we reconnect. So when we talk next, sometime in the summer, what should we be looking for? When we start, I'll be able to say, you're going to give me my first question. So, Danielle, did you do that? Did you do this that you told us you're going to do in March? Or (laughs) This is putting you on the spot.
0: That's actually, it's great because it also gives me something to aim for to create a goal. I hope that when we talk again over the summer that I will have a very clear outline of what the next book looks like so that I'll be able to say to you, this isn't just an idea. This is literally what the chapters will look like and that I'll be able to add to that some really interesting archival anecdotes. We have a few things that I will have found that I'll say, you know, this piece of text or this image or something else that I found that's kind of a primary artifact has shaped the way that I'm making my argument so that I can also walk you through the movement from an idea that's born of research I've already done to an argument for something that will be new research and that will be presented in a different space.
1: That is so interesting. I hope everyone else is, as excited by that prospect as I am, because it's really the kind of getting an inside look as it happens in how ideas and knowledge gets created, which is not very common to see. And because you're doing it in a field, in an area, I think that it has wide interest, food and Italy. It's not a narrow technical area. I think there'll be a lot of interest. So good. We're going to pick that up in summer. Thank you so much, Danielle, for being on the SITCAST and chatting with me. And it's a pleasure to meet you and have you part of the podcast. We we'll look forward to talking to you in a few months. Thank you so much, a Pleasure and a privilege. Look forward to talking to you again. I told you Danielle was interesting, didn't I? So, yeah, you can see how COVID remains in the background as this never-ending presence. You can see how she's thinking about what's next with respect to her research. There's always got to be another article. it has got to be another book. There's got to be something next. Our second conversation took place on June 25, 2021, almost exactly three months after the last conversation you just listened to. Now, Danielle is in Italy, in Rome, and she'll share in this second segment what life was like at that point in general, but also for her work. And for her personally, she's back in the library, but also back in the business of food and culture in Italy. She's on the ground and she's absorbing and learning and doing tons of different things. A little geek alert. We go a little deep talking about centuries old Italian libraries. But if you listen carefully, you'll see how all our senses are at work in a library if we let them. For me, this is one part mindfulness, one part respect and deep immersion in one's work and even one part love. And so if you like and love libraries, I think you're gonna like that particular portion of this segment as well. The other thing I wanna say is that this brand building, platform creating approach to building a career will really be on full display in this conversation. There's an interesting way of thinking about this that occurred to me while I was talking to Danielle, and it may be true for you as well. You know, we all do lots of different things on a daily basis as part of our work and part of our life. For many, these are one-offs. You know, you do it, you have a reason to do it, and then you move on to the next thing. The platform slash brand approach to careers is a bit different. Every one of those activities or projects, every one of those things that you do, you look for ways to leverage them in new directions to expand that platform, to expand that brand. So, for example, when Danielle is talking to an artisan making balsamic vinegar, she's also bringing that person and that story to her podcast. She's creating connections for her students, whether in-class guest speakers or project sites, are just examples of something she wants to convey. And she's building a repertoire, expertise, a set of relationships that many others may find valuable and interesting. Like TV productions, Stanley Tucci's TV series on Italian food, currently airing on HBO. Tourists who want to travel and experience what she's learning. And even research, where there's research examples, ideas, and sources. That same little balsamic vinegar artisan Interaction now gets exposure to multiple streams of influence through Danielle, which they value and which many others will value. And for Danielle at the center of the network, she's the gatekeeper who makes it all happen. Okay, let's get back to the second segment of As It Happens, talking to Danielle Caligari, June 2021. Welcome back to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I am back with Danielle Caligari. Hi, Danielle.
0: Hi, Sid. Thanks for having me again.
1: It's good to have you back. Now you're somewhere else, though. You are in Italy and you just got there not very long ago. We are now the end of June 2021. So how did it feel to be back in Italy in the emerging post-COVID time?
0: Well, it feels exciting, but strange. It was very important for me to get back, both to continue with my academic research, but also, as you know, and as we've talked about, I do a lot of work in food and beverage culture beyond the university as well. And being outside of Italy for close to two years meant that I was also out of touch with some things that were happening. So, reinserting myself has been fantastic. And while it's a sign of the very difficult period that's just passed, the quiet is kind of spectacular. I'm in a realm that is far less populated than usual at this time of year, and I've really been able to enjoy it as a result.
1: And that's because there's not a lot of tourists, right?
0: Yeah. Almost no Americans at all.
1: Wow. Imagine that. And how about from other major countries like China?
0: The majority of people around who we would classify as tourists are actually other Italians, by far the largest group, and then definitely seeing other Europeans around, French, German, Spanish, a little bit of smattering from other places. I've heard some non-American English spoken around, but on the whole, it's one of the first times in at least the last decade that I have been in Italy over the summer and most people around me are Italian.
1: We'll look back at this time, this summer probably, as one of the golden eras for those who are willing and able to travel. Probably all over the place, because ordinarily yeah. Italy, France in particular, are overrun with tourists from around the world, especially in the summer. When you landed, were there quarantine restrictions? How did that work?
0: I took a COVID-tested flight, Delta, Alitalia, Code Share, coming through Atlanta. So I took a COVID test 72 hours, or it had to be within 72 hours day or two before my flight, I took a test and got my negative results back. I arrived at the airport with that as well as my vaccination card, although that does not allow you to skip testing just yet. It will shortly. Upon arrival at the airport, I had to be tested before I could access my gate. Once I received the rapid test turnaround at the airport in Atlanta, I boarded and flew to Rome. And upon landing at Fiumicino in Rome, I had another test administered, waited for the results of that. Once that had been confirmed negative, I received a document attesting to as much, and then I was allowed to go on my way. No quarantining and no further restrictions to my movements here.
1: Did it take a long time to get the result in Italy when you landed?
0: No, not at all. Actually, the setup at Rome was fantastically smooth. I was really impressed. I knew they were doing a good job in general, and I've heard as much, but I landed, I think, about 9.30 a.m., and I was sitting down in my apartment in the center of Rome before noon, so it's about as good as you can get.
1: That's as good as it gets. Actually, it would be slower than that if it was a busy tourist time.
0: Right, exactly, yeah.
1: Are people wearing masks on the street?
0: Yes, absolutely. We're going to see an end to that particular rule coming next week, I believe. However, not only are people expected to wear masks on the street here, they are very much adhering to it. You'll see most people doing that. Most places are still limiting the amount of people inside. People are still fairly respectful distance. It's slowly unwinding right now. Numbers are good in the sense infection rates are very low right now. And so there's not a particularly risky moment. But it's also true that vaccination numbers are still relatively low. They're improving rapidly, but there's still a lot of unvaccinated people out. So you will witness, I think, here for a while longer, people observing some of those protocols still.
1: Enough about the COVID chat. Let's get to really fun stuff. So you're in Italy to do research. You're going to be leading student part of the Dartmouth student program, I guess, in the fall, and then you have all kinds of other activities that you're doing. Let's start with the research. I know it's early, and so you haven't spent a lot of time in the library yet. But I want you to tell us what the library looks like. It sounds like really impressive, and I want to know about it.
0: So I'm working in a few different libraries right now because. I'm finishing my monograph, so that means it's kind of a roundup of all different sources, double-checking things, following up on footnotes, etc. And so the options in Rome in that case include the Biblioteca Nazionale, which is a central library in theory, if not always in practice. Every single book published in Italy, a copy must be sent there. It's like our Library of Congress. And then it also has a substantial collection of rare books and manuscripts. So that's a good place to go, especially for critical literature. If you're working in Italian studies, it's a big, old... To Americans, it seems old. It's actually way newer than the other libraries I work in, but it's just a kind of more straightforward center for information. The other places I go, which have the rarer texts in them, include the Vatican Library, and then next to that, the Archivio Segreto, the Vatican Archive. Those are more interesting to work at in part because, first of all, you have to enter Vatican City, so you need to pass through a border, technically, have your documents checked, and then... If you are, in my case, a university affiliated professor with a terminal degree, you self-present at the library with your credentials and tell them what you're going to be working on. If you're someone who doesn't have an academic title or similar, you would need a letter of introduction explaining why you need access there. So there's that level as well. The great thing about it right now is, of course, they're further limiting access. So there's almost no one in there. And these are vast, cavernous, beautiful, high Renaissance buildings that are filled with some of the rarest and hardest to find texts ever created on the continent.
1: Wow. So when you're in a library like that, do you feel the history around you? Does it permeate into your body as you're (laughs) reading and thinking? Or it's just, okay? that's the context and I'm doing my work.
0: It's a little bit of both. It's hot. It's Roman summer. I mean, there are parts of the day where I just think, oh, my God, I'm going to try really hard not to fall asleep on my desk. And then there are other moments that feel very exciting also because I have both in the Vatican Archive and in another library that I worked in often in Bologna, which is a beautiful ancient library that was famous for having the anatomical theater where Michelangelo studied, for example. I've found things that I didn't know existed and that no one knew existed that fit into my research in a very special way. And then that's the kind of Indiana Jones moment, right?
1: (laughs) That's funny. Old libraries are just wonderful. You feel the century sometimes and you could just immerse yourself. And even if you had a nap, which is legit, (laughs) your students are going to be happy to hear that as well. You have to keep from falling asleep in the (gasps) Roman summer.
0: And that's okay. They're allowed to know that I'm a human <laughs> and I occasionally get tired. <laughs>
1: there's just something great about that. And maybe you do it a little bit more because of the nature of your research, but still, most of the time you're not there. You're whatever you're doing or you're in the US. So yeah, I think it's great to feel. Does it have a particular smell, these libraries? You know, the smell of old books or something else?
0: Oh my God. Yeah. Keep in mind, there's basically no such thing as an open stack library in Italy. There are a handful of newer libraries where you can work like that. But most libraries are treated kind of like an archive, and the librarians handle the material for you and you make requests. So the space is a little bit different. Most of them have really magnificent reading rooms, and then you have your materials delivered to you. So it depends in part what side of the building. I mean, if you're at the Marchana in Venice, for example, it's right at the edge of Piazza San Marco. And so some days it smells like a Laguna, salt air coming in. If you're in the secret archive, you can have some things that are very old and haven't been touched in a long time time and they have a very particular scent to them depending on if it's parchment or incunables that have different earlier forms of paper.
1: Well, not everyone thinks about the various senses at work when you're in a library, but I'm kind of one of those weird guys that I like it and I like to be alert to it. So we didn't talk about your own podcast very much, Angola. So tell us what that is.
0: So, yeah, while I do my academic research, in particular, while I'm preparing for a group of students to join me here in Rome this fall for Dartmouth LSA, LSA Plus program, I'm working on things for my podcast. Basically, all of these things work hand in hand, my academic research, my teaching and the podcast that is meant to be. A kind of open access educational apparatus for anyone who wants to listen and join me and my co-host, Katie Parla, talking about Italian food and beverage in a long historical and cultural studies context. Being back means that, as I said at the top, I'm really trying to collect raw data again, visit places, meet producers, understand what's happening on the ground here. And the podcast, luckily, has become increasingly popular, so much so that we were approached by a production team who is currently helping us to record episodes for a forthcoming television series. That means two things. One, that we'll have a new and wider platform. But the other is that we have been doing even more research and more interviewing and just moving around than we normally would because we are expected to deliver content sooner and with greater profundity than we have before. So That means that since I got here, I've been down to Calabria to visit a very, very small, totally non-interventionist natural winemaker. I was in Sicily finding out about soil types on Etna while it was erupting. I was in Abruzzo meeting a... Winemaker who prefers to think of himself as a farmer because he does indeed operate a full top to bottom farm between that includes apiaries and head of cattle and et cetera, et cetera, in addition to their old vines. I stopped at a famous pizzeria in Campania. I've been jumped up to Florence to check out a couple of new places there. Uh, just kind of all over the place on the phone today with a friend whose family makes some of the rarest balsamic vinegar in the original tradition, stemming back to the 19th century in the case of her family, but historically even longer than that for the product. So that is just a quick round of both things that I've been doing. And those are the things that we talk about on the podcast, but that also now are going to be part of what my students get to study with me as we're going to be focused on the intersection between food and community and identity in our fall seminar.
1: So before getting back to the food part, I want to think about the branding and business part. In August, I'm going to be giving a big talk at our Academy of Management, where I'm going to get a lot of people mad at me because (laughs) I'm going to talk about this can sound odd if you're not in the field, but why so often in management research, we don't talk about managers. We don't talk about the actual people, which is completely bizarre. And that has to do with the rise of economics, sociology and psychology as the dominant disciplines that care less about people and more about systems, processes and incentives and other things like that. One of the points I was going to make is that it's not just as an academic about your research and about your teaching. there are other ways to disseminate your knowledge, and there's other ways to learn. And I think your example of what you're describing, going to these farms and talking to people, and even the podcast, it's not exactly research, but it's somewhat research. It's not exactly teaching, but it's somewhat teaching, but it's this third leg as well that informs both of those others. And I think that that's the model of an academic that maybe people think that's what we do. In fact, it's rare. So hats off to you. For doing that and making that happen, because I think that's the type of management, education kind of approach, whatever your field happens to be, that really helps people understand things. And you learn the more, you know, the more you can convey to other people. I'll let you know how that talk goes.
0: Yeah, I can't wait to hear how many feathers are ruffled.
1: (laughs) I hope a lot. I really do. (laughs) We'll see. So how do you find out about all these people that you connect with, the growers, the producers? What kind of network do you do and how do you develop it?
0: That's the thing, right? You can't replace in-person connection when it comes to things like that. So because of the research that I do and because of the work that I've done in the past, there are some people I know already who I can reach out to or who let me know when they think there's something that I'd be interested in happening. Those are things that can happen in the U.S. People obviously both visit and operate businesses of interest there. We have all used the Internet to great mixed success this year in that sense, but it's possible. Since getting here is a great reminder of how much more I can accomplish and how much richer my network grows when I'm able to be in person. And the other thing is that there's two things. One is on me. So I do this wherever I am in the world. I have a growing or constant list of people I think are doing something interesting whom I should know. And I slowly reach out to them at what I consider to be opportune moments. My friends all basically know that at some point I decided I would collect them. And they are now in my orbit, whether they like it or not, because I'm extremely insistent. So I'm doing that wherever I am, all the more if I'm here in Italy trying to learn more about Italian food and beverage in the contemporary context and in a historical perspective. But then once I am here, I can take advantage of that mode of interacting to much greater effect. And in very short order here, I've met up with friends and contacts whom I already had, who then each of them, of course, tells me about something or someone interesting or relevant going on or do some new project, et cetera, at which point each of those individual contacts becomes a kind of node in a network scheme. So I had dinner at a friend's restaurant who's a very interesting young chef who's been experimenting The experimenting part is fun and interesting, but more importantly, who operates a restaurant that's about complete transparency and working directly with the people who provide all of the products in her kitchen and understanding labor practices behind all of that. So I got to catch up with her, have a lovely meal with her, hear about what's going on then. But then, of course, she pointed me towards each of the producers she's currently working with and why she has chosen. She let me know about an event that's coming up where I'll be able to meet several people all in one space because they'll happen to be in Rome. She will be working with me to create a day-long event with my students where we will go with her to the wholesale market to purchase items for that day, go to her kitchen, see how she prepares for service that evening, and then sit down and eat the meal that was prepared discussing why certain choices were made. In a couple of hours, I basically did what would normally take me months to organize from a distance.
1: Yeah, it sounds like those types of experiences for your students are going to be unbelievable. The trick is, what do you get them to do in terms of assignments and their own intellectual development? It's not hard for everyone to hear. That's fun. I'd like to do that. But you're a teacher. So you have an example of kind of an assignment you're planning or thinking about in that regard?
0: Oh, absolutely. Everything that we're doing outside of the classroom goes hand-in-hand with what we're doing inside the classroom. So our seminar starts in the ancient world with Petronius and the Satyricon reading about banquet culture in the ancient Roman context and talking about things like social order, soft power, economic viability. It's a place that we start and we outline all the ways in which food culture become something that communicates much more than what's apparently on the surface. Once we've done that, we then also work together, the students individually, and then we as a group outline several questions that are going to drive us and that we'll return to both while we're on location and while we're together in our seminar room. Then we move ahead from there. So each week we move a little bit further along chronologically up through the high into the late Middle Ages, Renaissance, early modern Italy during the wars, so-called Italian wars, up through the Risorgimento, Italian unification, fascism, World War II, and eventually the boom economico of the mid-20th century up till today. It's a quarter, so you can imagine it's kind of a breakneck piece. But we do a trans-historical journey because the point is, of course, that each of the moments that we're looking at is going to offer us the opportunity to answer the same questions with a little bit more richness and clarity each time. So while we're out and about in real life contemporary Rome, we're posing those same critical thinking questions along the way. And we're asking ourselves, how is someone like, for example, a very young female chef in Rome today able to operate a business? And what is she able to do as a result of that? Who is she speaking with? How is she exercising agency? what happens because of the choices on the plate there, what is happening behind the scenes in terms of how that chain that we talked about from market to table is a reflection of a longer history. Where do tradition and innovation work together? I mean, these are just things that it's already superficial because I don't want to be excessively boring for your audience. But the real issue that I tend to have with my students is how do they rein it in? And so what we normally do in a seminar like this, and what I will definitely be insisting on in the Rome program, is everyone define something that's going to be their individual guiding practice so that the students select something that they're excited about. Maybe it's social justice. Maybe it's something a little bit more niche like How migration culture works with gender studies today—they work together to come up with something that's their way of thinking about things, so that each time we go somewhere or do something, they collect a new data point for their individual project that fits into our larger conversation.
1: And it's great, Danielle. You know, in the higher education world, we've all been on Zoom for a long time, and. People see the Zoom, actually we don't like it, we want to be face-to-face, but it works actually reasonably well, better than most people, certainly I ever imagined it would. And online education is booming. And a very legitimate question is, well, why spend as much money as the top, well, many top or not universities are charging? If you can get the same content online, and what you described is a type of immersive experience, and that's the word learning experience, that justifies why we do what we do and why we're not just an online university. I kind of wish we would have more such crossing the lines, experiential, combining in and out of the classroom. It's harder to do for certain subjects, no doubt. I've been thinking about that a lot in the context of this talk that I'm going to give also about business schools and why there are business schools in the first place and why it is that most of the classes are really providing a commodity product in the sense that there's a body of knowledge and everyone teaches more or less the same thing. Not everyone, but many people do. And I have not like that idea as a matter of principle. So anyways, it's kind of a long winded way of saying, you know, what you're doing is in some ways the future of education as well.
0: Well, that's a very kind thing to say. I hope so, because I think that's what learning and life are all about in general. But certainly the university experience is supposed to be about getting the tools to think I'm not really interested in teaching my students a collection of facts. I'm interested in showing them how when they approach a situation, they can be more sensitive and more profound thinkers themselves, no matter what the situation is. So that although we're studying Italian food history, maybe if we want to give it a kind of simple disciplinary name, the point is that the practices there can help them and be useful to them in any other context.
1: Google knows more facts than you and I know, about everything.
0: Exactly.
1: (laughs) I don't want to compete with Google (laughs) anyway.
0: Exactly.
1: But they can't do it. You're describing. This is great, Danielle. Great conversation as always. It's exciting to see what you're doing.
0: Thanks again. It's such a pleasure to talk to you.
1: Well, enjoy the Roman summer. I might have to go now watch some old Hepper movies now to just deal with this conversation as I'm here (laughs) in New Hampshire, but you take care. We'll talk soon.
0: My pleasure. Thanks again.
1: The third and final segment with Danielle Caligari was recorded four months after the second segment on October 25, 2021. This time she's in the midst of teaching, Dharma students on a special program in Italy, putting together lots of what she's been doing before, but always adding, looking, expanding her portfolio. When I first check in with her in this segment, I'm sure you'll note the optimism on COVID back in the end of October, which now almost three months after that has switched again, of course, And if there's one thing we should have learned by now, it's that COVID has made us humble or should have made us humble and patient. Just when you think it's getting better, something happens again. But I'm an optimist and I know we're gonna get through this round and I hope everyone will continue to stay healthy. One thing you're also gonna notice is that when Danielle describes the course and the experience she has created for her students, you're probably gonna wish you could be in her class as well. I mean, aside from the Italian setting and aside from the big focus on food and wine, which we all like a lot, this type of education is experiential learning at its best. To me, universities that continue to offer standard learning just in the classroom and without a strong experiential component are living on borrowed time. And I think that it's something we've tried to do. I've tried to do in my own work as well. People need to experience what life is like as much as we possibly can while teaching. Well, this is a topic maybe for another day, but higher education is going through a revolution right now in part driven by the Zoom era and how so many people, so many classes were being delivered online at places including Dartmouth where people never imagined this could possibly happen at a high quality. And it's causing some rethinking. I don't think enough rethinking, but some rethinking nonetheless. But the point here is the type of experiential learning that Danielle has created for her students is just wonderful. And it's what we all want to do ourselves. And we hope our kids get opportunities like that as well. We started in segment one talking about Dante, And Danielle's book, we return to that topic at the end of this segment. Danielle's book is near the finish line, which let me tell you is a giant accomplishment. But of course, there's more and there always has to be more, another book. And Danielle makes another good point about how all the work on her platform has to stick together in a cohesive manner and be seen to be cohesive. As you'll see, doing so creates a bit of a dilemma. Because if you think about it, on the one hand, you want to experience and absorb, pivot and adjust, zig and zag, as Philippe Bourguignon memorably put it in my episode 96 this past July zig and zag on the other hand you want a whole set of activities assets accomplishments to fit together neatly so that others can understand who you are and what you stand for what your brand means it turns out pivoting and adjusting is not always consistent with tying a pretty ribbon around your brand so your audience knows who you are maybe this is yet another example of something I've come to believe is very very true leading managing your career, living your life, each of these central goals, these central aspects of who we are. We have to be comfortable to do this with ambiguity. And especially we need to understand that life is seldom an either or choice, but it's actually both. You need to zig and zag, absolutely. But you also need to define a clear persona to the world. I think when we fall into the trap of believing that only one side of this equation is valuable, that's when we don't fulfill our potential. And that's where we may be falling short. Embracing the paradox, two seemingly opposite approaches to life. Well, that's essential. Okay, now that my mini lesson is out of the way, let's get back to the main act. Danielle Caligari, now in Rome, segment three of As It Happens on The Sitcast. Welcome back to The Sitcast, Danielle.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Sid. My pleasure to be here.
1: So this is round three. And you're in Rome supervising and working with a bunch of Dartmouth students and doing all sorts of other things. First of all, how are you feeling? Like you're feeling good, you're feeling happy about everything that's going on there?
0: Yeah, I'm very happy. It's been a very intense program because we're working under kind of peculiar conditions. And also everyone's, I think, just a little bit more manically energized than they might normally be because it's the first time doing significant travel and moving around for everyone who's here. Of course, things keep changing a little bit here and there all the time. So we're also adapting in any given moment. But on the whole, it has been been absolutely wonderful to be back in Italy, of course, both for my own experience and the fact that it's a big part of my life and research, but especially because I get to lead this group of students who have been studying Italian and expecting to come here and have this experience, but who were sidelined for more than a year as a result of COVID.
1: So what's the quick COVID update? Is it pretty okay? I mean, it's never going to go away, but pretty okay in Italy in general and Rome in particular?
0: Yeah, things are pretty good here. Vaccination rates are high, case numbers low. People are very respectful. On the whole, there's a pretty straightforward protocol, we could say, in general that has been implemented across most of Europe. If you want to be indoors for really anything, You show your green pass. And if you are unable to get vaccinated or choose not to, you are required to be tested minimum, I believe, of every three days. Sometimes it's even more frequently than that, depending on the kind of work or interactions you have. So the feeling is, I think, one of general safety and well-being. There are cases going around as anywhere, but vaccination rates being high and people conforming to requests from public health officials has been good.
1: Have the tourists come back to Italy?
0: Yes and no. You know, it's funny because, of course, having been here for a little while when there were almost none really noticed their presence now that some Mm -hmm. people are coming back. But I know that in terms of statistics, things are still not nearly what they were in the past and certainly not going to really bounce back significantly, probably until next summer, if we imagine a time where people start really planning in advance to travel again.
1: Did they start the COVID booster, the vaccination boosters there as well?
0: Yes. As of right now, so far as I know, it's limited to people of an advanced age and with compromised systems. But yes, yeah, boosters are here.
1: Okay, so your students are like crazy excited to be there. I'm sure they are, especially given all these students that signed up or expected to be doing this program a year ago. Is that right? Or most of them?
0: Yeah, it depends on the student. Some of them had all manner of other plans in place as well. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of rewriting their personal course of study now as a result of having had about 18 months of Either things being totally canceled or limitations movement, but the group of students who have been waiting for about a year to get here. So all of Mm -hmm. them are extremely enthusiastic and engaged in terms of their study of Italian. So it was an especially important moment for them in cementing that pursuit.
1: Yeah, that's just something that's so much fun to teach and lead young people, students that are totally into what they're doing, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's fantastic
1: and these are talented students to start with so what have they been doing what have you been showing them and have you been in Rome mostly or you've gone all over the country
0: No, we really limited, I should say, we chose to really limit our travel and our focus to mostly the city of Rome and a little bit beyond within the region of Lazio, which Rome is the capital of. We have done some of the classic things that you'd expect. We visited Vatican museums. Next week, we have the Galleria Borghese, the the famous sculpture gallery. The students, of course, went to the Forum and the Colosseum, all kinds of classic Roman experiences. But then, particularly with me and in tandem with our seminar, which is focused on how food and gastronomic culture construct community and identity. We're really trying to experience that in all different ways. And that includes things like our trip last week to Frosinone, which is a small hillside town about an hour and a half outside of Rome, where we visited a woman who was previously at the three Michelin starred restaurant La Pergola in Rome, but left to open a bakery where she makes bread using only heritage Greens and mm. only the kind of most traditional methods of production and uh, then we visited a historic pastificio a place where they make pasta using the equipment first developed just after the second world war when italians began eating pasta in large quantities for the first time i know people think of pasta as profoundly and historically italian but in fact most of the peninsula did not eat much pasta at all or really have a relationship with it until the 20th century
1: So what happened actually just on that, that brought pasta to become the classic Italian dish and it wasn't before. It's amazing.
0: So most of Italy doesn't grow wheat very well. So white wheat pasta is expensive and wouldn't have been part of a diet, for example, especially in the north where polenta and rice are mostly used or in the center of Italy, much more. You see bread stews. If you've ever been to Tuscany, those will be familiar. So the south, the deep south of Italy had an amount of wheat that could sustain a regular pasta diet. But because wheat was so valuable on the greater commodities market, Mm -hmm. it was not usually something that people would keep for themselves. What happened after World War II is known as the boom economico or major explosion in economic growth that developed a middle class in Italy for really the first time. There are different ways that we can unpack that. But suffice to say that it's a moment that coincides with general prosperity, people getting refrigerators and cars, the kinds of things that we associate with the mid-century development across the European Mm. continent and the West. And that's a moment in which people began to buy foods that were once very special to have on the table or that would not have been accessible otherwise. And so pasta eating really explodes in the 50s in Italy.
1: That is really a surprise, as you alluded to. (laughs) Certainly for me, because you watch these shows, like we may have touched on uh, Stanley Tucci's show, I think, and one of the advisors on that show. And he's visiting these out-of-the-way places and they're making these incredible pasta dishes. And it's the way it's been made by my grandmother. But I don't know if that's true, if it goes back. It doesn't go back 100 years, does it?
0: <laughs> Mostly not. Maybe as far as the generation that most people are talking about, which is people born in the 20s who came to the U.S. in that last wave around the world in between or during the world wars. So the students had a chance to see a family still making pasta in the way mm-hmm. that particular moment gave life to it. The end of that day was spent at a family-owned historic pharmacy where they still produce some of the most traditional licori or a bad translation as liquors into English, but really the extractions of roots and botanicals that were understood to have a place at the dinner table after dinner with digestive drinks, but mm-hmm. also an important role in maintaining health. So we tasted through some of their distillates made with things like gentian root or teriyak, in this case, foraged by the family directly and then produced in a way that they've been doing it for at least five generations.
1: Wow. So what was the student reaction to that? Because that's different. All of those experiences.
0: It's been great because it has been an opportunity. This is something that I work on when I'm teaching all the time. And I think it's an important part of the pedagogical strategy at Dartmouth in general, which is, you know, how do you apply what you're encountering or experiencing in the classroom outside of it and in the broadest way possible? And so... This has just been kind of eliminating the distance between those spaces, right? We are in class reading pieces of social and structural anthropology, of history, the kinds of critical texts that I use to help them develop methodology for a kind of traditional academic research path. But then we go out and we talk with people who are making products and interacting with the community. And consider how they have contributed to these questions of the boundaries of community, the construction of identity, the understanding of self and of how we communicate and express ourselves to others.
1: And these people that you visit and bring the students with, how did you meet them? How did you get to know them in the first place?
0: Well, two ways. One is that speaking of Stanley Tucci searching for Italy, my dear friend and frequent collaborator, Katie Parla, who takes Stanley around during that episode in Rome, is also our go-to guide here. So she has worked with me to find the kinds of contacts and the kinds of places that dovetail with what we're doing in the classroom. And Mm -hmm. beyond that, my personal network of contacts as someone who works in food and wine as a contributor. contributor to outside publications and to things like a podcast or other Mm -hmm. television or et cetera, et cetera. I tap all of those people and ask them if they would be willing to share what they're doing with the students. And often they're not only willing, but extremely enthusiastic about it because, of course, their hope is that the work that they're doing is seen that way, although sometimes their clientele is not necessarily quite as engaged or aware as they might want them to be. So having students who are prepared and who are being really thoughtful and really focused in that way is something that they're seeking all the time and are really happy to be able to take advantage of.
1: There's more than these three people you talked about, places that you visited it what's in their head what drives them especially that the Michelin the former was she a baker or a chef she does the bread
0: yeah exactly
1: i mean that's quite a thing it's like going to one of the top top places you possibly can be in your field to kind of a small niche thing that it's got to be a labor of passion but what drives them i'm very interested in that
0: Absolutely. You see it here, even within the city of Rome, the things that the people we've talked with or we meet with or businesses we made relationships with or the spaces that we've explored are all being run by people who are making these decisions based on passion and a desire to connect to those underlying concepts and concerns that we're talking about when we're trying to understand how you approach food and beverage culture in a really conscious and rigorous way. So what often happens when, for example, the baker, Roberta, who was previously at La Pergola and indeed. I mean, three-star restaurant in the capital of Italy, what could be a higher achievement? A city known for eating within the country, best known for eating, (laughs) and the highest accolades, moving to a small town an hour and a half outside of the city to make bread basically quietly. Of course, it's not so quiet anymore. People have found out where she is and have sought out her products. But what drove her was the fact that she wanted precisely the kind of engagement that I'm bringing my students to demonstrate for her. And not just people there to spend money and feel fancy, but rather people coming with the understanding that she is holding up a piece of herself. This is her own identity, but also a piece of the community, giving back in a very clear way, trying to inform others and educate them through the products, and also trying to ensure that the grander scheme behind that is being appreciated and given space. So that is to say she knows exactly where the grains she works with are coming from, who's working them, how they're treating them. For example, she's currently developing a panettone for this Christmas season, the traditional kind of loaded sweet bread that Italians give as a gift around the holidays. And she's made a relationship with a producer of each product that will be in the bread, including the The eggs, which there are dozens of yolks per (laughs) panettone, so that's an important part. The people who do the raisins, the candita, which are the little other pieces of dried fruit, et cetera, et cetera. This is a product that in that sense then can represent the broad network of people who are producing things in a traditional and conscientious way and thus avoiding a lot of the things that we also talk about in class. For example, The manipulation of the labor market by organized crime or the lack of consciousness in producers who inevitably then undercut, or I should say lack of consciousness from consumers who then undercut producers who are trying to do things in a quality way, but are unable to stay in that market that always rewards the lowest bidder.
1: I love the mindset of people that do that. It's so impractical. Yeah. (laughs) And so it's beautiful, actually. Switching gears a little bit, I know you were at Etna Mountain and they had a big eruption, volcanic eruption as well. Can you describe what you were doing there and what you saw?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So in fact, before the program started, while I was in Italy on my own for a bit, I did some traveling to lay groundwork for future programs and expectation that the next time I'll be back with the next student group and all those to come in the future, we'll be doing more traveling, visiting people who are working with food and wine and spirit in all different kinds of contexts, kind of broadening our lens. And so I spent some time in Sicily where I have relationships with several wine makers who have rejected any kind of industrialization in their practice and who complete cycles of maintenance of the biodynamic environment and the biodiversity of the environment that they are producing within. And so I went to visit my friend Salvo Folti, who makes wine at Ipeñeri, He's a famous winemaker who made wine at several other properties before moving on to his own much smaller and more circumscribed project in Milo, right at the top of Etna. And happened to arrive just at the tail end of a very substantial eruption, which covered the better part of that side of the mountain in black ash that really looks like as though several inches of snow had fallen, only black. And it was wild. We spent part of the day cleaning off some areas of the winery so that people could sit down and not get covered. Mm. We explored some of the soil together and talked about how this affected the composition and what his expectations were for next year's growth as a result of that. I had to leave a little bit earlier than anticipated because it started to rain and I needed to get down the mountain before there were ash slides
1: Ash slides. Yeah. Oh, my goodness.
0: (laughs) It's a very interesting experience this time. Yeah.
1: How do you have a winery that's up in Etna when it gets covered with ash? How is that even possible?
0: So this particular winery is in Milo, which is the highest inhabited space on the Cone of Etna. Beyond that, nobody lives because it's too close. And if there's a lava flow, you won't be able to get out fast enough. And there are. In fact, I think there's been a crazy amount of activity this year. So dozens of substantial events. The answer is you completely allow nature to take its course and do absolutely nothing to try to push back mm-hmm. against it. The vineyard that Salvo tends is used to being covered with ash. So the plants are resistant, although they get affected, and the soil is composed of the remnants of past eruptions. And as mm-hmm. a result of that, the grapes respond well to what joins that slowly over time as newer flows or other there volcanic events that occur.
1: So I have to ask whether the wine tastes any different.
0: Well, I'll tell you, I've tasted through a lot of vintages there, and I will be very curious to have this year's vintage, also because it's an interesting year for a lot of reasons. It was very hot in the south and almost no rain. The north got too much rain. Central Italy did better overall, but there are going to be visible effects in the wine this year for sure. It was not an easy year for anyone. Wines that come from these spaces that are being produced with grapes grown on heavily volcanic soils are of this nature already. So every vintage I've had is strongly, strongly influenced by the presence of that soil. And that's what makes it characteristic. It's also what drew me there in the first place. The wines are really phenomenal for all kinds of reasons, but they have a lot of depth. They're really meditative in that way.
1: Wow, so interesting. I mean, what that story has in common with the other examples is just people doing things because of themselves, but also because of history and tradition. And that, once again, the question of how practical can it possibly be, but yet that's their life, that's what they want, and it works. It's fantastic, really, because we live in such a world of everything's processed, everything is systematic, we have data analytics on everything. There's no algorithm that's going to tell you to have a vineyard in it.
0: No, do not. It's not going to happen, but
1: yet there are these people that do it, and they thrive and they live and they learn and they teach. It's really fantastic. <laughs> I don't know what we would do without these people to break the algorithms, break the rules of the algorithms that dominate our lives. One other thing I wanted to ask you about, I think you had a lot of people or guest speakers to come and visit your students and you had a street artist as well. And I'm very curious because I've become a fan of Banksy and not just a fan of Banksy, but the business model of Banksy, being a business school professor, selling artwork that not that long ago I would have looked at it and said, who wants this? and $10 million, please, and they're lined up to get it. It's incredible. So who did you have, and what is that art scene like in Rome, the street art scene?
0: Yeah, well, it's very rich. It's an important part of community activism here, and... In particular, I invited Chibo, who is a street artist from Verona, so from the northeast of Italy. His name, Cibo means food, or his nomdat, as it were, <laughs> means food. He began using his talent for working with basically large-scale murals on the walls of his city in an effort to cancel, as he describes it, cancel hate. What that means in practice is he identifies places where far right-wing groups have tagged walls with signs of hatred as he interprets them, typically swastikas, sometimes fascist symbols. Occasionally, there's, as you can imagine, a robust iconography. Rather than simply covering them, he chooses a food item that somehow connects to this specific space that he has located and creates beautiful art, art that again, speaks to that community, right? So that is something that the people who live in that space are not only pleased to see because it eliminates the unfortunate influence of groups who are provoking violence or that are provoking violence, but also in turn brings them some pride and joy in seeing something that represents who they are in their community.
1: Has he become well known in the sense of, you know, his artwork selling and all that?
0: Yeah, I think because of the kind of art that he does, he is mostly invited for commissions. And so he spends a lot of his time still in the city of Verona and basically is held up by contributions, small scale, but wide reaching contributions. He is invited to other cities to create murals for their cities, sometimes to contribute things like posters or stickers or other things to smaller projects. This year, because of the Dante anniversary, he created a poster that's Dante made of food that was part of an initiative in Ravenna, which is the city on the east coast of Italy where Dante died.
1: What was the reaction of your students to Chibo?
0: Oh, they loved it. One student is actually creating an entire final project around similar kind of parallel activities in Rome. So there isn't one individual artist working in this way, but there are several groups who do similar Mm -hmm. things. And one of my students tracking them and contextualizing them in light of having met Chibo and spoken with him about his project. Overall, I think as with our other speakers, we've also met with the founder of a not-for-profit focused on telling the stories of migrant people coming up from mostly sub-Saharan Africa into Italy and trying to become part of the community here. We will be speaking with a young chef here who is only sourcing from producers who are making sure to espouse good labor practices and to ensure the integrity of the chain from producers introduction to preparation. All of these examples have been perfect for the students because they immediately see what it means to engage in a real way through a business. In fact, for the purpose for Italian students, we're not necessarily drawing the line always from A to B when it comes to how what we do in the classroom is going to serve you if you make this choice in terms of how you want to make money. And instead here, we're talking about both the practical aspect of it. What can you do with this in order to have a livelihood? And the engaged and activist side of things, how to be a contributor in a really conscious way, how to make something that allows your community to thrive and for you to feel proud of.
1: I wonder whether we're in an era where, looking back, we'll say this has really been the era of activism in a variety of ways, not just the big activists in terms of NGOs or actually in business hedge funds are activists for a totally different reason, but just everyday people, young people who they want to live reasonably well, but they also want to make something happen that's good for others.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I
1: certainly see it. Having taught for a few years, I see a big difference in my own students. And it sounds like that's exactly what you're seeing now as well, Just is pretty cool.
0: Absolutely. Very much so.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned Dante. So let's go back to what's happening with the book. And then I want to ask you to kind of forecast forward for yourself as well about what's next.
0: Well, the book, which brings together this research on food and teaching on food and kind of cornerstone of my research as an Italianist on Dante and medieval literature, is officially at the press. In fact, I'm going through gatekeeping right now. So it'll get set for print by the end of the calendar year. And then it'll be out in my hands probably by April 2022. Wow, exciting. that'll
1: be exciting. Oh, I know what that's like when a book comes out. It is, of course, a little bit anticlimactic because you've been working on it forever. Yeah. And then it finally comes out, but still, there's something great. And then when the publisher sends you a box of books that you could send to your closest friends and family and <laughs> yeah. supporters, that's a nice thing. That's a really good thing.
0: I'm looking forward to that part of it. Also, because many people have helped me and supported me along the way. So I do yeah. look forward to being able to show them that something came of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's something that you want to enjoy because you'll be doing lots of other stuff, of course, just like you are now. But you want to take the time. That's my little bit of advice. Take the time to just absorb, yeah, really to be mindful of that. So what's next for you? What's your vision, if you will, of what you want to accomplish professionally over the next number of years?
0: Well, there are some really practical goals immediately on the horizon. An assistant professor, I will be putting together my tenure dossier for academic year 2023. So we're already almost at the end of 2021 somehow, which means that's coming up sooner than (laughs) I'd even like, probably. But being tenured will be important, getting this book out and promoting it properly as part of that moving on to the next book, which is always for better or worse. Sometimes there are many nice things about it, but other times it's a little bit of just kind of forward motion. You're always publishing something new. So speaking of the anti climax of one book coming out, you're of course working on the next book by the time you're done with this one. So those kinds of straightforward structured academic goals are there. But I'm also really thinking all the time, and I hope I'm moving toward being increasingly successful with this, about how to fully integrate all of the different projects I do into kind of one streamlined profile, which is to say I also have a podcast on Italian food and beverage culture. I also freelance and write about food and beverage history in an Italian and sometimes in a broader context for different kinds of publications. I consult for people. I work on various different platforms. And I think sometimes, particularly in the past, that has seemed a little bit haphazard or splintered. So my efforts right now and in general are going towards really demonstrating, even for myself, but also for people who are meeting me from the outside, how all of these things work together and and kind of showing it as a coherent single profile of someone who has these certain passions that are broadcast in a variety of ways.
1: Right, what you're talking about really is clarifying for yourself, maybe for others as well, your strategy. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly.
1: Not just as a scholar, but as a multifaceted professional and academic. The fact that you described that it, it's sometimes appearing or could appear haphazard is actually extremely common and shouldn't set you back in any way. A very famous academic in my field decades ago talked about how strategy emerges that. It's very rare to have people sit down and deliberate and say, okay, here it is. Let's just go execute on it. I mean, I'm sure it does happen, but it's the exception to the rule. Strategy is much more emergent. The other thing about strategy is it's happening whether you know it or not, which means it's really good to take control of it in the way that you're describing. You know what I mean? Because whatever you're doing, people read into that and see that, and they have in their heads, their vision or their view of you as a person, as a scholar. So why not try to get control of that? (laughs) I applaud that effort and it fits into what we know works in totally different fields as well. Well, we've been chatting for quite a while. This is round three. I think we got to wrap it up. I feel like if I checked in with you in another few months, you'd have more interesting stories to share. I
0: hope so. (laughs) Uh, Yeah,
1: I'm sure you will. When are you coming back to America? Never. That's the answer. Never.
0: (laughs) No, I will come back towards the end of the calendar year to see some of my family and friends and then to begin teaching again in Hanover in January for the first time for me in person because I joined the faculty at Dartmouth while COVID was still unfortunately at a peak and we were fully remote. And then I came to Rome for our first quarter with in-person classes. So January 2022, I'll get to teach on campus at my new institution for the first time. So I'm really looking forward to that.
1: That's kind of amazing, isn't it? That this is kind of what a modern career looks like in the era of COVID. Well, that'll be great. I want to thank you for being on the Sidcast three times running now for our three mini episodes that we'll put together. And I think people are going to get to know who you are and the work that you're doing. I think it's going to be very exciting to share and that you're able to share your story with my listeners.
0: Thank you so much, Sid. It's been really such a pleasure. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for listening to The SIDCast. I'm really excited to be bringing you Season 3 and really appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website, www.thesidcast.com. Or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune in to another one of our episodes. And please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.